Well, good morning. It's good to be back. It's good to see you all. I thought it was funny that Tim refers to Philippians chapter 3 and says, well, I'm not totally sure what Noah was thinking here. You can imagine my surprise at opening my Google Doc yesterday and looking at the sermon I wrote two months ago and thinking, what was I thinking? (laughs) We'll find out here in a few minutes. First of all, I bring you greetings from many friends from all around the country. Uh, One of them has uh, joined us as well. It's good to see a friend from Fargo uh, here with us this morning that we got to see in Fargo and enjoy worshiping with him and his family and his church on the sabbatical. As well as uh, I bring you thanks. Thank you for the sabbatical. Thank you for giving us rest and Letting us go away and recover and come back, hopefully bringing now the spirit of energy and of joy to the work we're doing this morning. That in mind, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I do remember why I picked this text. I picked it primarily because I knew that as I come back from two months away... I'm going to want to read a text that I really delight in and that really restarts the fire. And Romans chapter 8 is one of those texts for me. I'm going to begin reading. I actually don't have a bulletin in front of me. Is it verse 26 through 39? Yeah, okay. So I'm going to begin reading in verse uh, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 39. Romans 8, 26 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know... That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. One thing I love about this passage is how the Apostle Paul begins in the present experience. Verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We are a people much beset by weakness. I know I am. We are a people who are surrounded and suffering under perpetual weakness. But the Holy Spirit loves us. And He knows what to do with us and how to help us in our weakness. He trains us to pray. He prays for us and He teaches us to pray. In doing this, He is aligning us with the will and purpose of God. That's the second part, verses 28 and following. That God the Father has a plan and purpose for us. One that we are apt to forget in our weakness. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and teaches us to pray and prays with us so that we remember the Father's plan for us. The plan to justify us, sanctify us. The plan to perfect us, sinless and holiness in Christ. But thirdly, we are apt to forget the love of Christ who died for us. And so the Holy Spirit who loves us teaches us to pray, drawing us out of our weakness into the strength of Jesus Christ. That is his love. A love that nothing can break. A love that nothing can end. A love from which we cannot be separated A love that lingers long, though we forget it. Psalm 59 takes the same posture. It teaches us to pray from the present problem to the glorious future. Sorry, kids in teen camp, that theme's still on my mind. They heard five, six, seven sermons about that already this week. That the psalm trains us to move from the weakness of this hour to the strength. Of God's love. With that in mind, turn back to Psalm 59. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 59. Oh, thanks. Look, I'm preaching on Psalm 59. The bulletin says so. But the sermon notes will come from 1 Peter 3. So uh, you guys figure that one out. (laughs) Psalm 59. I'm going to read this Psalm of the Month. Psalm 59. Here again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician set to do not destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life, the mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves for no fault of mine. Awake to help me, and behold, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Selah.
At evening they return. They growl like a dog. And go all around the city. Indeed they belch with their mouths. Swords are in their lips for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and for the words of their lips, let them be even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may, be, may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. And at evening they return. They growl like a dog. They go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense. My God of mercy. Amen and amen. Well, one of the great benefits of taking a two-month sabbatical and being away for a while is that you get to amass sermon illustrations that you can bring back. As many of you well know, I drug my bicycle 3,000 miles to Kalispell, Montana, and back, and rode it only two times. This is actually not uncommon for me. Uh, It's actually a track record I have of taking my bike all over the country and not using it. But as many of you know, there was a different reason this time. I rode it once around Eagle Lake in southern Michigan. Nice, easy 20 miles around the lake, just pedaling twice around, enjoying the view. The following Saturday, I went with a good friend. And we were pushing 20 miles an hour just west of Fargo. And I struck a a chunk of concrete. And I was hurled forward onto my handlebars, and the tire went flat, and I was wiggling and fighting, and I threw my pet feet free of the pedals, and this is all on glorious video. My friend had it on a GoPro camera. I can show it to you. And as I'm wrestling this bike that wants to obey gravity, and I don't want it to, there came a very dramatic and visceral moment when the thought struck me. You're going to fall. I I just remember very vividly fighting with the bike and then suddenly thinking, dude, you're not going to stay up. And from that moment on, I, I transitioned from trying to hold the collapsing bike up to falling as safely as possible. My my friend looked at the video and assured me I did a very good job. At some point in our lives, we will stop and we will have the realization we're not going to survive. At some point, we will receive a diagnosis 
and its consequence will be death. At some point, we will hear the screeching of tires and the smashing of metal and the shattering of glass, and we will see Jesus. At some point, the ideal will pass through your mind. I'm not going to keep this up. I'm going to fall. The question before us this morning from Psalm 59 is, what do you think next? When you realize what we must all realize, life here on earth will not last forever. What then will you think? The truth of God for us this morning, the tremendously encouraging thought is not, gee, I'm glad James is with me. Gee, I'm glad there's an ER down the street. No, the truth of God for us this morning is that when we realize we're going to die, in Christ death has died. The gospel truth for us, the glorious truth for us, embedded in this psalm, displayed on this table, is that in Christ's death, death died. Jesus has killed death. Let's sing his praises. Let us all day today sing his praises. Look at the psalm with me this morning. Notice at the beginning, David describes an inescapable problem. In the subtitle, he refers to it as Saul sending men to watch his house in order to kill him. This is a story we find in 1 Samuel chapter 19, in which David is in his house with his new bride, the daughter of Saul, Michal. And there are men, bodyguards of Saul, sent to destroy David. David in the psalm, verses 1 and 2, describes them as enemies. This is an ironic turn of words because these are actually David's co-workers, David's colleagues. They are Saul's bodyguards. Their job is to defend the king. David is a general in the king's army. These are co-workers, colleagues. They, They are on the same team. But here in the psalm, David says they are his enemies. From this right away, we realize the immediate impact of the psalm. We have the same problem, don't we? That most of our lives' chief enemies are not the foreign faces we don't recognize. Most of the threats to our well-being will actually come from the ones we love most. Our co-workers, our spouses, our parents, our children. Our enemies who are most threatening to our well-being are more often than not those who dwell in close proximity to us. David says they rise up against me. They assume an authority over him. They assume an opposition to him. Instead of being colleagues and co-workers in the common mission of promoting the welfare of King Saul, they have decided that the welfare of Saul and the welfare of David are opposed to each other. David must fall in order for Saul to survive. In verse 2, David calls them workers of iniquity, meaning those who will stop at nothing. They will sin to achieve their ends. Specifically on this night, they are willing to murder David in the dark. Not just any sin, not just any iniquity, they will go the full length of stabbing a man in the dark in order to achieve their purpose. 
They are, as David describes them in verse 2, bloodthirsty men. Willing to drink David's blood, willing to take David's life, they lie in wait for him in verse 3. They gather in strength, that is in great number, and in desperation around him. Now David is a mighty warrior. David has faced Goliath toe-to-toe and taken him out. David has slain 200 Philistines in order to steal their foreskins, in order to pay the bride price for his wife, McCall. David is no wimp. David is no coward. David is a skilled and mighty warrior. And yet on this particular night, he is hiding in his house, surrounded by an inescapable enemy. Surrounded by certain death. He has not done anything wrong, he says in verse 3 and verse 4. There is no fault in him. By this, David does not mean that he is entirely sinless. What he means here is that he has done no wrong against Saul. And he has done no wrong against Saul's soldiers. He does not deserve this particular punishment or problem. A problem he has not created has become a problem he cannot escape. He is trapped inside his house and he cannot get out. He is stuck through the sins of others. He himself is trapped in deadly peril. They have run through the streets of the city from the palace of Saul to the palace of David. And they are prepared to take his life. Perhaps most sinister of all is that David as general of Saul's army, as son-in-law to King Saul, is probably living in a house provided by King Saul himself. A place that should have been shelter has become a place of death. David is trapped inside his house and there is no escape. It reminds me of the springtime experience in Oklahoma, where the warm, wet weather would come up from the Gulf, And the cold, dry weather would come down from the Rockies. And over the plains of Oklahoma, they would dance. Because the warm, wet weather was on the bottom and the cold, dry weather was on the top. But the cold, wet weather wanted to be on the top and the cold... I'm sorry, the warm, wet weather wanted to be on the top and the cold, dry weather wanted to be on the bottom. And because they were in the wrong place and they wanted to change places, they would try and go around each other. And around and around and around each other, they would go faster and faster and faster. Until we had a little thing we called... A tornado. And onto the TV would come the broadcaster. And he would announce in his dramatic broadcaster voice, Get inside your closet. Get inside your basement. Get out of the way. You cannot escape. This is the kind of experience David is having this fateful night. Where darkness has fallen all around him and his enemies have risen up against him and he is surrounded on every side by problems he cannot escape and he is trapped inside his closet. Does this at all sound familiar? Have you been there before? For some of us, we can look abroad. We can see our brothers and sisters who are literally facing enemies who are literally chasing them into hiding. Have you ever thought it odd that we pray for brothers and sisters who are missionaries by their initials? 
Because they have been forced into the closet of anonymity in order to hide from the murderous intentions of the countries they are seeking to convert. Have you ever thought it hard and unusual that you should face around you so many problems of which you cannot speak? And you sit silently in your pews and you attend quietly all your church meetings while in the closet of your heart is hiding all your fears and all your struggles and all your doubts. My friends, here is a psalm for you. Here is a psalm for you that feels the weight of the inescapable problem, that feels the desperate hour of those sins and sorrows of which you dare not speak, in which the night lingers long and you sink deeper and deeper from closet to basement into the deep depressions that are so prone to Christians whose problems cannot seem to be escaped. Here is a psalm for us. That we might know how to pray our way out of such problems. Because the answer, my friends, is not in our cunning, not in our wisdom, not in our skill, not in our strategy, but in our prayer. David finds a solution in prayer. He says to God, deliver me, defend me, save me. He says in verse 4, awake to help me and see me. Awake to punish all the nations. David, realizing that he cannot get out of his house, he is trapped by these inescapable problems that he has been closeted in secret with all his sufferings. David wakes up to the reality that God is with him because he prays. Instead of seeking a way out of the problem, David seeks a way up from the problem. David turns his attention heavenward and prays. Deliver me, defend me, save me. He expects God to do all the work. He expects God to sort out the problem. What is more in verse 4, by saying awake, David is speaking out of the intensity of his distress. He knows that God doesn't slumber or sleep. Psalm 121. When he says, come to me and help me, he knows that Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And when he says, look, see, he knows that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere on all the earth, seeing all the poor and the needy. He knows God is awake. He knows God is on his way. He knows God can see the problem. The reason David is crying out is for himself. In order to remind himself that God is awake, that God is alert, that God is attentive. He gives to God in verse 5 two names. The Lord of hosts and the God of Israel. In this way, he captures the two important features of God's character that moves us to pray. First, he is a God able to help us. He is the Lord of hosts. He has all of heaven at his disposal. A God of authority and of power. But secondly, he is the God of Israel. The God who is with us. The God who loves us and who knows us and dwells with us. These are the things about God that lead us to pray, that inspire us to pray. He is able to help us. He is willing to help us. Knowing this about God, that he is both of power and of love, David, through prayer, reminds himself God is attending to him. God is awake. He is alert. He does know. He will punish the nations. 
He will not be merciful to the wicked transgressors. For this reason, David ends this section with his first, Selah. He says to his audience, he says to the choir, who is singing beneath the chief musician, pause for a moment. Pause and consider this fact. That when you encounter those situations where you are surrounded by problems on every side and you cannot escape, look up, pray, because your Father already knows. Because He already sees. Because He's already paying attention. Use prayer as a means not to change history. It's already been foreordained in the wisdom of God. Not to change the world. He's already established its foundations forever. But to change you. But to move you into the reality of the love of God. To move you into the truth that you cannot see with the flesh but only by faith. God is there. And he is listening. You are not alone in your closet. Your father sees you. He hears you. And when you hide in the deep, dark recesses of your heart, and no one in the world knows the problems that are bearing you down, God knows. And prayer does not exist to make Him informed, but to make you aware of His love. That He is alert to you. So then David, having... Settled himself down. Okay. My enemies are all around me. They've surrounded me. I cannot get out. But that's okay. God knows. God knows. He returns to the problem in verses 6 and 7. At evening they return. They growl like a dog. And go all around the city. Indeed they belch with their mouths. Swords in their lips. For they say. Who hears? The problem here is that he has enemies who not only surround him, but enemies who persist in bearing down upon him. Enemies who come back evening after evening. Enemies who return to him growling like dogs. Enemies who go about the city prowling in search of him, hunting for him. He cannot escape. They persist in chasing him down. Indeed, in verse 7, their persistence is rooted in their arrogance. They feel an immunity. A great power that says they will not be harmed. Belching with their mouths, speaking out swords. They promise death for David, saying, who hears? Of course, in the middle of the night, in the dark of the street, when they're marching up and down, howling like dogs and boasting aloud, everybody hears. The point of their question in verse 7 is not to say no one hears us, but to say that no one will do anything about it. No one will respond. No one will answer. No one will come to our aid, to David's aid, because we are sent by Saul himself. My friends, the reality is, is we are not only surrounded by our enemies, and they chase us into our closets, but we are surrounded by enemies of tremendous power. Enemies who are able to bear us down, break us down. Enemies who are able to leave us alone Alien in our own homes. Feeling forsaken. Such that even our Savior should hang on the cross and say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
They return and growl about us and say, no one will hold us accountable. No one will hold us for our sin. But in the sweetest words in the scriptures, at least according to R.C. Sproul, verse 8, but God. But God acts. And in verses 8 through 13, David lists out at length the actions that God will take in order to set this right. First, in verse 8, the Lord will respond to this arrogance of David's enemies, this persistence in surrounding him with inescapable death, with laughter. He will laugh at them and hold them in derision. Some of you know the story. It is hilarious. The Lord laughs. Do you know how David gets out of this inescapable problem? His wife, you know, Saul's daughter, lets him go. Saul sends his henchmen to murder David. Who thwarts their plan? Saul's own daughter. The Lord laughs. Seriously, Saul, I can use your own kid to stop you. The Lord laughs at Saul. What is more, how does David get out? He's released in a basket thrown out of a window. Can you imagine this? All the bad guys are amassed at the door, banging at the door, let us in, we're going to kill David. Meanwhile, McCall's out at the back window, throwing him into the bushes in a basket. The Lord laughs. This is a very funny story. In the meantime, she goes back to the front door, throws it open, and they're like, all right, we're here to kill your husband. And she's like, I'm sorry, he's sick in bed. And these cutthroat thugs, these murderous assassins, are so overwhelmed by the message, he's sick in bed. They go back to the palace and say, sorry, we couldn't kill him, he's sick. What assassin lets a sick man live? Who cares if he's sick? Who are these pathetic people? Back to the palace they go. Saul's like, really? Really? Just bring up the whole bed. I'll kill him right here in my palace. So they go back. They pick up his bed. They carry him to the palace. He throws back the covers. And there's a hunk of rock covered in goat hair. This is hilarious. The Lord laughs at them. The Lord mocks them. David gets away in the most absurd way exposing their complete foolishness, their utter incompetence. Oh man, you fell for the old idol covered in goat's hair trick. This is what my kids do with their stuffed animals. You're a professional assassin. You're Saul's own bodyguard. Boy, it's time to start over. The Lord laughs at them. He makes a joke out of them. So great is our God, so marvelous in mercy, so wonderful in grace, that David says, I wait for you. I wait for you to make a laughing stock of my enemies, to mock them and to ridicule them. You are my defense, the God of love. The God of love who makes a mockery of my enemies. In verses 11 through 13, David adds to this, Do not slay them, but scatter them, bring them down, consume them in wrath. This seemingly contradictory message is actually in David 
easily, easily reconciled. What he means is, do not kill them quickly or quietly, but rather scatter them from Saul's retinue. Bring them down from their positions of power and privilege. Let their sins be laid bare and let their wrongdoing and pride be exposed. And by their cursing and their lies, let them be trapped, that they would fall prey to their own wickedness. Let them become victims of their own sin, that in your wrath they might discover God rules in Jacob, not Saul. Show them who's boss, not David, and not Saul. Show them that God and God alone rules in Jacob. Show them that he rules indeed to the very ends of the earth, that all things are in your hands, O God, to bring about the blessing of your people. This is what David does with prayer. It moves him from the reality of an inescapable problem to laughing at his problems. To laughing at his enemies. God is with me. He pays attention to me. And he takes action for me. And so David says in verse 9, I will wait for you. By this wait, of course, he doesn't mean that he stays in his house. No, he's thrown out the back window with a basket. But by wait, he means I will trust the Lord to provide. He will not race out the front door, sword and spear in hand, to face down his foes. He's not a Hollywood hero, taking to the streets in the middle of the night, fighting all his enemies, one on twenty, tearing them apart. That's not his role. Instead, he submits to the will of God. He surrenders himself to the care of God and finds God a good caretaker. And so, we get our second Selah. Stop and think. That friends, when we are surrounded by problems, when we are submerged in problems, when our problems seem to have all the upper hand, the answer or response is to pray. Not so that we can get God to pay attention to us, not so that we can get God to act for us, but so that we can open our eyes to the fact that He is paying attention to us and acting for us. Do you see the difference? Do you see the importance and power of prayer? That God is already paying attention to you in all your problems, and God is already acting in this world to save you from all your problems. Prayer is the instrument by which our eyes are open to that reality. He's already here and He's already at work. But we need prayer to discern his presence. And so David returns to his problem for a third time. But now through the eyes of faith. Now through the heart of prayer. Verses 14 and 15. At evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all about the city. Same problem. Notice that. He comes back to the same description. I have problems all around me. I hear them growling at me. I hear their bloodthirsty intentions. I hear their violence. They mean to destroy me. But then verse 15, they wander up and down for food and howl if not satisfied. Ah, that growling of the dog is not a roaring of my life merely. It is also a roaring of emptiness. 
It is an exercise in futility. Why is Satan described as a roaring lion? Because he can't get no meat. He has been chained and rendered toothless. Jesus is a fantastic dentist and has torn the teeth out of the lion. All that Satan can do now is roar. All that the dogs of this world can do now is growl. And in their howls we hear the echoes of their defeat. Because our Jesus is paying attention to us. Because our God is acting for us. They wander up and down and are not satisfied. They have come up empty. And so David ends with, I will sing. He says it again and again. I will sing. I will sing aloud in the morning. I will sing of your defense. I will sing of your refuge. I will sing your praises. I will sing God is my defense. I will sing God is my love. God has loved me and defended me and kept me safe. David begins the song in the house while still surrounded by his problems. That's the power of prayer. That's the power of the Psalms. They move us from help me to hallelujah. Kids and teen camp heard that one too. The psalm that begins, help me Lord, ends with I will praise you Lord. And David hasn't left the house yet. Because he knows the God he can trust. He can provide. Prayer takes our focus off the problem and puts it on the problem solver. Let me enrich the psalm with one more layer. Jesus is woven throughout the psalm. As hopefully you know because you've heard 58 and a half, well, 58 and four fifths of sermons on psalms from me. Jesus is woven throughout the psalm. We can go back through and we can spend another half hour or 40 minutes preaching. I won't do that to you. Preaching through this psalm. And how it speaks so poignantly to the reality of Christ Jesus. That he himself was once hidden away in the safest place he knew. Where he closeted himself with his best friends in the garden of Gethsemane. Only to find himself surrounded by bloodthirsty workers of iniquity intent on taking his life. David had a basket and a window in the daughter of Saul. Jesus had no one. His disciples abandoned him. The twelfth one betrayed him. And in that sanctuary, a garden in which he would often go to pray, he was laid bare to the violent intentions of his foes. Surrounded by problems he could not escape. They lay in wait for his life and they seized him, though he had done no wrong at all. Verse 3. Unlike David, he doesn't mean it relatively. He means it absolutely. Without sin, without transgression, without fault, Christ was seized in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he never had to say to his father, awake. He said it to his sleeping disciples. Awake and pray with me that you would not fall into temptation. At evening, like dogs growling around him and belching with swords in their mouth, they seized him and arrested him. But the Lord laughed at them. 
For on that dark and fateful night, they arrested the Lord of glory. And at dawn, they drug him out for trial. By midday, he was hung on a cross. By nightfall, he was dead. And Sunday morning, death was dead too. And so was sin, and so was Satan. For the Lord laughed at them and held them in derision. What they thought was their hour of triumph was his hour of glory. He did not slay them right away, but he broke them down piece by piece. So that one by one, generation after generation, you and I and all our fathers and children would fall asleep in Christ and find the grave empty. Like a howling dog, death is empty. And our graves are empty. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. In Christ's death, death died and went empty. And now the grave howls and groans. Its day of death has come. But verse 16, I will sing. I will sing of praises. Beloved, your Jesus sings. He sings of his resurrection. Will you sing with him? Do you know the resurrection in Jesus Christ? And will you sing with him? One last little picture for you. I remembered all of these stories and I told them to the kids at Kids and Teen Camp. Here's one I left out. When I was a little boy, I woke up in the pitch black. Not the pitch black that you guys see in your houses. The pitch black that you only see when you live on a farm. And there's nothing even remotely electric for miles. I woke up in that deep, dark black where I could hold out my hand and not save my fingers. And when I woke up in that pitch dark black of night, I looked out and there were two little beady eyes down on the floor staring at me. And I was terrified. I have a super active imagination, even today. And I could imagine all the amazing fanged creatures that that was there on the floor. And as fear rose up within me and terror gripped me, Those eyes leapt up off the floor and landed with a splat on my pillow. And I heard the familiar purring of Goldie, my cat. Beloved, the day will come when you will realize this is the end. Death has at last come for you. But if you are in Christ, You will find death a defeated foe. And you will find your grave already occupied by a waiting, resurrected Jesus. This is the hope of Psalm 59. That in Jesus' death, death died. So we should sing his praises. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for this beautiful psalm. We give you thanks for the truths you have given us in Christ, to which our hope and our hearts can cling. Father, forgive us 
that we stray so much from these truths and lose ourselves in the muck and mire of this life and are easily overwhelmed by the fears of our hearts, the problems of our lives, and are forced into silence and to secrecy. But we thank you for this psalm that teaches us to pray and to move from prayer to praise. And we pray, O God, that you would this morning write these words upon our hearts, that we, in the confidence of the resurrection, might celebrate today the sweet joy of our Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.